The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Okay, we've got a special guest with us tonight, uh, Jim Dumas. You're on our prayer list, so, so most people know who you are. Why don't you stand up and just kind of say hi. Jim works with uh, Jim Myers over in Kiev. And um, I always like it when he comes back in the winter because I get to go over and stay in his apartment. And he brought a brochure, new brochure from the Word of God Bible College in Kiev, and I put them out on the entry table, so make sure you pick one up. There's lots of pictures in there of the different students and a little biography about them and some information there. Also, don't forget, a week from Sunday on New Year's Day, there will be a brunch following worship. And if you want to help out, see Ann Wright, and she'll let you know what you need to do. Also, we need to remember, to continue to remember, uh, Cynthia Cooper and the Cooper family in our prayers. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer for you to use uh, 1 John 1.9 if necessary, then I'll open in prayer. Father, we're so grateful that we have you to come to, that you are an ever-present help in time of trouble, and that you desire for us to be continuously dependent upon you and to bring our desires and requests before you in prayer. Father, we thank you for the good report on Cynthia Cooper and her recovery. We pray that you would continue to strengthen her and that your word would be a constant source of strength and help to the family. Father, we can continue to pray for this congregation. Thank you for each one that's here, their desire to know your word, their uh, love for you, their love for the truth. And Father, we just pray that as we go through our study this evening that you would enrich our spiritual lives with the information we glean from the scriptures and the doctrines we study, that uh, God the Holy Spirit would make these things uh, real to us, that we might see that this is not just abstract uh, intellectualization of things in the scripture, but that it has real application on a day-to-day basis in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Hebrews 4. Hebrews chapter 4. We're wrapping up this section of Hebrews, which began in 2.5 down through the end of chapter 4, 4.16. And the last part from 3.7 to 4.16 is a warning passage. Hebrews is constructed around these warning passages, which drive home the application from the didactic passage, uh, section. So each one of these five warning passages that you get in Hebrews is built around a didactic section which teaches something, brings out some points from Old Testament texts and from the life of Christ, and then you get this this point driven home in terms of a serious warning to the believer, challenge that uh, we need to do something. It's not just a matter of learning interesting data about the priesthood of Christ or the ascension or something like that, but that this has moment-by-moment relevance to every believer's life. Furthermore, what we see in the development of Hebrews, so you can read it with some more, a little more intelligence, is that as you go through a section, certain ideas and themes are brought out in the didactic section, usually highlighted again in the warning, and then that theme is pulled out and expanded in the next section. So there's a uh, a development of the of the basic themes of of the epistle down through the chapters. So as we see in this section, Hebrews two five started off talking about the fact that God the Father did not God the Father did not put 
the world to come, that is, the future millennial kingdom, of which we speak in subjection to angels. And then there was a quote from Psalm 8, 4 through 6, talking about the fact that it is Jesus Christ is the Son of Man, and his, the fact that He's true humanity, that is, the, the one to whom the future kingdom will be given. And that his qualification to rule and to reign is related to his suffering and coming to earth and his mission during the first advent to go to the cross and die as a substitute for us on the cross. That part of that was to bring many sons to glory, and that doesn't just end in in the concept we have of justification and ending up in heaven, but it's the idea that he is preparing us for our future destiny to rule and reign with him as priests and kings. So in order to fulfill that, we're told that he went through a process in, the, in his humanity where he, his, where he suffers, he goes through adversity, and he is tested so that he can demonstrate how a human being is to handle problems and adversities and difficulties in life. In contrast to Adam who failed, Jesus Christ is the second Adam, succeeds. Therefore, we're told in verse 17 of chapter 2, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. So he had to be made like us in order to be a faithful high priest. This then leads to the challenge that begins in 3.7, that we are to hear his voice and believe what he has said in ongoing faith rest drill so that we will be prepared to enter into that future rest as those who rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ, unlike the Exodus generation that failed. That's the analogy that, of course, was at the core of the entire section from 3.7 down through 4.10. And starting in 4.11, we see a series of applications indicating, indicated by the phrase, therefore. In verse 11, there's, let us therefore be diligent to enter the race, That's to enter the rest. That's what we studied last time, that in light of all that has been preceded, he draws his inference, this conclusion, that we must be diligent, we must work hard, we must... Uh, be alert and be vigilant in order to make sure that we enter the rest. Entering the rest is not equivalent to entering into heaven. Entering the rest, God's rest, is, is entering the millennial kingdom as one who is honored and rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ and prepared to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we see in that context, verse 12, that it's the word of God that's living and powerful And it is the Word of God that is used by God the Holy Spirit to expose our arrogant agendas in our soul and our arrogant human viewpoint so that we can replace the human viewpoint with divine viewpoint. And only by doing that does it build the character and the integrity and the capacity so that we can rule and reign with Christ in the Millennial Kingdom. And then we come to the conclusion to the section in verse 14, which is where we start this evening. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to recognize that we're not guaranteed just because we're a Christian that it's going to be a life of ease, a life of happiness, a life without uh, sorrow, difficulty, pain, and adversity. In fact, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're trying to go anywhere or grow anywhere in the Christian life, then what's going to happen is you're going to find yourself in the vortex of the angelic conflict. You're going to find yourself uh, at a place where it seems like all hell seems to be breaking loose around you, and no matter what you try to do, it always seems to be very difficult, and people look at you and just wonder what in the world is going on. Now, I've always noticed that when it involves computers and uh, travel, that no matter what can go wrong, it will go wrong, and it will go wrong in spades. But when we just went through this process of closing on our house and getting ready to move, my realtor made the comment. He said, I've never had such a difficult closing. And I said, well, it's too bad you don't understand the angelic conflict because I could make it clear to you. 
we don't have time. It's just because that's what happens sometimes, and that's how the Lord allows us to be tested and examined. We go through adversity in order to be examined and to demonstrate what we have learned in the Christian life. So we have to rely upon the resources that God has given us, and He's given us tremendous resources, and that's the whole idea is for us to learn to rely on those resources. And this leads to the doctrine of sufficiency in Scripture. Now, the word sufficiency means that what God has supplied is enough. You don't need any more. You don't need something else. You don't need to take the Bible and add something to it. Uh, often I'm reminded of the of the conflict that is, uh, frequently occurs in churches between those who believe in the sufficiency of Scripture and those who believe in, in uh, psychology. What in the world did Christians do to handle problems in their life, marital problems, family problems, uh, economic problems, whatever they were? What did they do before Freud came along? All of a sudden, in the late 1800s or late uh, 18, uh, late 1800s and into the 19, 1900s, all of a sudden Christians began began to get enamored with psychology. That oh well, the Bible's nice, but now that we understand these dynamics of personality and interaction and behavior, now we can really solve our problems. Well, gee, what a, too bad all those Christians for 1,800 years didn't know that before, so they could. Uh, they could have really had happiness in their life, so they had to wait for Freud or Maslow or any of the other uh, psychological theorists to come along before they could find real happiness. The Bible says that that the Word of God is sufficient. So we have the sufficiency of the Word of God. We don't need to know anything else. God's Word has given us everything we need to know so that we can handle the problems and issues of life. The problem for most Christians is... They don't think deeply enough about the Word of God to be able to address the problems in their life. Well, actually, they don't think deeply about two things. They don't think deeply enough about the problems in their life and how they originate from their own sin nature. And second, they don't think deeply enough about the Word of God to see how it applies to their issues, their problems, their difficulties. I hate that word issues. It's such a postmodern way to avoid the question of problems. The other day, I was watching a news report and they were running the ticker tape across the bottom, and there was an airplane that came in and had to uh, make an emergency landing up at JFK. And I'm reading about it on the ticker tape as it went across the bottom of the screen, and it said that this airplane had landing issues, <laughs> landing gear issues. I thought, oh, my, just a way. We have problems in this world. You can't escape it. We're living, we live in a fallen world. And we have the sufficiency of God's Word. It gives us all the information we need to know to handle the problems. Not all the information we'd like to have sometimes. Not all the, all the uh, information we'd like to speculate on. But it gives us everything we need to know to handle whatever faces us. We have the sufficiency of grace. That God in His kindness has given to us everything. We need to know. It's not based on who we are, what we've done. It's based upon His character, on His goodness, and on His kindness. Then third, we have the sufficiency of the cross. The sufficiency of the cross that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single sin in human history. So that negates the whole problem of guilt, which is what motivates so many people, is they're just trying to deal with the guilt over something they did wrong or something that happened to them that they feel guilty about. So we have the sufficiency of the cross. And then fourth, we have the sufficiency of God the Holy Spirit. If we're walking by means of God the Holy Spirit, then God the Holy Spirit plus the Word of God is going to produce in us spiritual growth, and we will experience that abundant life that Jesus promised. So this, the foundation, though, is in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and His example or precedent that He set during the first advent. And that's the backdrop for understanding these last three verses in Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4.14 says in the New King James translation, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That's the command. That's the main idea there. There's a foundation to it which is given in that first clause, but the mandate, the punch in verse 14, 
is that we are to hold fast our confession. But holding fast our confession is predicated upon something. And that is what's given in the with the participle at the beginning of verse 14. It's a conclusion. Therefore, should be translated a little stronger than the then of verse uh, of the New King James. It should be translated like the New American Standard has it. Therefore, the the New American Standard says, therefore, since we have a great high priest. And that begins to capture the sense of this participle that begins the phrase in the Greek. It is an adverbial participle of cause. And so we are to understand it to say, therefore, because of something. The therefore really goes with the command. Therefore, let us hold fast our confession. But there's something that comes between the therefore and the command. It's because of something. Because of a reality. Because we have a high priest. Because we have a high priest, because this is a reality, because there is a high priest in the heavenlies who is standing there interceding for us, who represents us to God the Father, a high priest who has made a complete, finished, sufficient sacrifice for our sins. Because of all of that, we have an incumbent responsibility, which is to hold fast to our confession. So we look at the foundation for the command, and that is the high priestly work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot that's said in Hebrews about the high priestly work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we've just barely had an introduction to it. It really gets developed in the next chapter. So in some ways, what we're getting ready to go through is an introduction to the first part of the next chapter. As I said uh, earlier, When you look at these sections, they'll bring in a few themes, and then the next section unpacks uh, those themes, and then that leads to the next uh, section, the next development. What we learn and have learned already is that Jesus Christ had to be made exactly like his brethren. He had to be made in true humanity. I want you to notice that in Hebrews 2.17, we read, Therefore, in all things... He had to be made like his brethren, that he might be, in other words, for the purpose, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. In order for him to be a merciful and faithful high priest, he had to be made like his brethren. What's the presupposition of that verse? The presupposition of that verse is that Jesus was fully God, that he's the Son of God that He is already the eternal second person of the Trinity, but He had to become like us. See, it's not assuming He's human and He became divine, but it's assuming that He was already eternal God and He had to become human. It assumes the reality of the deity of Christ. The deity of Christ isn't some doctrine that early church fathers sort of cobbled together in the 3rd and 4th centuries in order to... Uh, make the Bible mean uh, something in order to juxtapose Jesus to Caesar or anything like that. It was already there. The very assumption from the beginning was that Jesus was who he claimed to be, and that was the eternal second person of the Trinity who became flesh. He's called Emmanuel, a term that you often hear in Christmas carols and Christmas hymns, but that few people today understand the term Emmanuel means God is with us. And this is one of the titles for Jesus Christ. He is God in the flesh. And so he didn't tack on deity. His deity tacked on or added humanity. So he had to be made like us in order to fulfill the purpose and all of the objectives in the first advent. The primary objective was to provide propitiation, atonement for sin. One of the secondary objectives was to establish the basis for the Christian life in the church age. This is what's seen in verse 18 of chapter 2. For in that he himself has suffered, having been tempted. He is able to aid those who are tempted. That idea is that Jesus Christ went through every category of adversity, as we'll see in our passage. 
these two verses in Hebrews 2, Hebrews 2, 17 and 18, become the backdrop for understanding the last three verses of chapter 4. They, they both come at the conclusion of this, the, the two internal sections of this division from 2.5 to the end of 4. So he has suffered. He's gone through adversity. And in that adversity, he was tested. Of course, we know of the three testings in the wilderness. But beyond that, there were other situations and circumstances in his life where he was tested, whether he would... Uh, trust the Lord or not, and we'll come to an understanding of that as we get into our passage. So first of all, he had to be made exactly like his brethren. He had to become true, genuine humanity. He didn't just look like a human. He wasn't just some phantasm that just floated through space. He didn't just take on the facade of humanity. He had to become true, genuine humanity. Second thing, as true humanity, we learn from these verses that Jesus Christ went through every category of adversity. It wasn't just some wraith. See, that's what the Gnostics said. Was They were also called docetics. Docetics, that may be a new word for some of you. That's a based on the Greek word dokeo means it just seemed to be there. He wasn't actually a human. He just seemed to be a human. He was... He was just sort of a phantasm. They didn't really nail a physical body on the cross. It was just sort of a divine deception. And that's what the Gnostics said because, of course, God couldn't die. God couldn't become associated with anything material because that would destroy his deity. So they rejected uh, the true humanity of Jesus Christ. But what the Bible teaches is that Jesus had to go through every category of adversity and human experience in order to demonstrate certain things. And when he went through those circumstances, he experienced in his humanity all the mental and emotional things that go along with that. So that he experiences the, the, the thoughts, the emotions that we experience. That was made him true humanity. But he does not sin in the process. So we learn that Jesus Christ in his humanity then set the standard, set the precedent for the Christian life of the church age. The church age spiritual life is not based on the Old Testament Mosaic law. It's based on what Jesus Christ did in the power of God the Holy Spirit. So he lives this, his spiritual life through the filling of God the Holy Spirit, walking by means of the Holy Spirit, his mind is completely oriented to the Word of God. Remember when he was 13 years old, he goes to Jerusalem with his parents, and he goes and they leave and they're headed back home. They discover that he's not in the caravan, and they go back and find him sitting and having a, a theological discussion and disputation with the rabbis in the temple. And they ask him, well, what are you doing? He said, well, don't you know I need to be about my father's business? He is so His mind is so oriented to his mission and to what the Word of God says that he is not being distracted by uh, what would normally distract children. So he sets the, the precedent for the spiritual life in his humanity through the filling of the Spirit, walking by the Spirit. He's completely oriented to the Word of God, and he's going to handle the problems that he faces in life not on the basis of his deity. That's the foundation here. He doesn't face these tests by relying upon his deity. He doesn't rely on his omniscience, his omnipotence, or any of his other characteristics in order to solve the problems. He deals with these problems totally as a human being, and he does so by relying upon the Holy Spirit in applying the principles of Scripture. This is where we get into the idea of priesthood. A priest is someone who is qualified according to a standard, God sets the standard, to serve God in the sanctuary, uh, whether it was the tabernacle or the temple. He's a priest who's qualified according to a standard to serve God in the sanctuary, to offer sacrifices at the altar, and to act as a mediator or a go-between between man the creature and God the creator. 
So we see that Jesus Christ served man in relation to God by offering a sacrifice for sin. This is seen in Hebrews 5.1, where we'll be next week. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. So that one verse incorporates the function of a priest. He's appointed for men in things related to God. A priest represents man to God. And in this function, he offers gifts and sacrifices for sins. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ did. He offered himself as a sacrifice. He died as a substitute for us, and the sins of mankind were imputed or poured out to him on the cross so that the penalty was completely paid for. Jesus Christ, as priest, was appointed the only true mediator between God and men. A mediator is a go-between who is able to represent both sides of a conflict to the other side. And he could do this because he had become true humanity. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the what? The man, Christ Jesus, it emphasizes his humanity in that verse because as a true, truly human being, he could represent us to God. So the emphasis is again on his humanity. Jesus Christ as a priest was appointed by God himself. This was in contrast to what was happening in Jewish history at the time where you had a, a period of years, of decades, where the high priestly family was dominated by, the, by Annas, who was a high priest during the time Christ was on the earth, and then was replaced by his nephew Caiaphas, and then there were a number, number of other grandsons and other cousins who were all brought, to, uh, brought into the uh, high priesthood, and they were all appointed by the political powers, the Roman governors. And so it was in complete violation to the Word of God, to the scriptural mandates under the Mosaic Law, but that was the priesthood. In contrast to that, Jesus Christ is appointed a priest by God Himself. And this is seen again in the next chapter, Hebrews 5, 4 through 6. And no man takes this honor to himself, that is the honor of being a high priest, but he who is called by God just as Aaron was. Aaron was the high priest under the Levitical system, under the Mosaic Law. As the high priest, he was a he was appointed high priest by God himself. Verse 5 says, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. This was not something Aaron sought after. Christ did not seek after it himself. But it was he, that is God the Father, who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Have we heard that verse before? This takes us right back to where? Right back to the very first chapter, Hebrews 1.5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. This is a reference to the declaration of Christ's sonship at the ascension. It's a quote from Psalms 2.7, and we'll dig that out when we get there. Verse 6, another Old Testament quote. Again, it was quoted in Hebrews chapter 1. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. A quote from Psalm 110, verse 4. So Jesus Christ is appointed a priest by God himself, and it's a priesthood that is distinct. It's like the Aaronic priesthood in some ways, but it is not the Aaronic priesthood because the Aaronic priesthood was dependent upon genetic uh, gen genetic factors in, in birth, you had to be of the tribe of Levi. And Jesus Christ was of the tribe of Judah. So his priesthood is not the priesthood of the Aaronic priesthood. It is the priesthood of the Melchizedekian order, which we'll get into in a second. 
As the true mediator, it was Christ who offered sacrifices to God and made intercession for us. Now, this brings us to the next point, is that there were three types of priesthood in the Old Testament. There was a patriarchal priesthood, and we saw that on Tuesday night in our study of Genesis. We saw that Isaac, after he had been married to Rebekah for 20 years, they could not have any children, and she was barren. And so we studied that Hebrew verb, which said that it was translated that Isaac pleaded with God on behalf of Rebekah. And I pointed out that that word in its Arabic cognates, as well as the way it's used in, I think it was Zephaniah 3.10, indicates a prayer that is accompanied by ritual sacrifices, which indicates it's, it, it's a more intense form of prayer. Now, Isaac would be coming to offer that prayer and to make sacrifices on the basis of his patriarchal priesthood, that he was the head of the family. So it's not related to the later Levitical or Aaronic priesthood, because Levi and, of course, Aaron had not yet been born. Isaac was the, was the grandfather of Levi. So there's the patriarchal priesthood, which began with Adam and extended uh, all the way down in, through the Old Testament, was still in action, even alongside of the Aaronic priesthood. Then you had the Melchizedekian priesthood. And the Melchizedekian priesthood was a royal priesthood that was based on regeneration, not position in the family, not your genetic relationship to Levi, but it was based on regeneration and on royalty. And the Melchizedekian priesthood becomes the category, the precedent for the Lord Jesus Christ's priesthood. And then you have the third type of priesthood in the Old Testament, the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood. Aaron, Moses' brother, was the high priest, and Levi was the tribe that Moses and Aaron uh, came from. So it's the Levitical priesthood. The high priest had to be a direct descendant of Aaron, but any member of the Levitical tribe could serve in the temple, but the priests were of the uh, were the other descendants from the other sons of Aaron but the high priest had to be a direct descendant from Aaron now the priesthood of Christ then as we look at this passage you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek what do you notice about that verse a priest forever I remember not long ago somebody came up and asked me, said, well, you know, just thought just really hit me tonight when I was talking about the, the hypostatic union that Jesus Christ was true humanity united with undiminished deity in one person forever. That a million years from now, a human, physical human body with scars and everything will be in heaven with us, in his humanity. In his deity, he'll still be omnipresent, but in his humanity, he will be localized. And there will always be a, a, a human body that is part of the incarnation. It never ends. And this is related to it here in Psalm 110.4. You are a priest forever. He never will stop being a priest. He is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the priesthood of Jesus Christ is eternal. And this is brought out in Hebrews 5, 5, and 6, and uh, verse 9, as well as Psalm 110, verse 4. So Christ's priesthood, though it's eternal, though it's eternal, does not, func- he, he does not function in that priesthood at all times. Even during the incarnation, he did not function as a priest. The activation of that priesthood really occurs at the ascension. Now, there were times he functioned in similar ways uh, early on. For example, we have the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ in John 17 and other places where he prayed on behalf of his disciples. That was part of his priesthood. But it doesn't come into its full-blown uh, dim- uh, dimension, its full-blown uh, activity until the ascension takes place. And that's why you have this reference here in Hebrews uh, Hebrews 4.14 to his ascension. 
Our Lord assumes his full priestly function at the ascension. He passes through the heavens. And there we have one of my favorite pictures of the ascension because it just captures the great, the great humor in the moment. That, remember, those, those disciples had never seen anybody fly. We've seen people fly. We take it for granted. We were all sitting around. Now, some of you were way too young to have been sitting around, but others of us were there when those, the first manned spacecraft went up and then promptly came right down. How disappointing. I remember being disappointed. Well, he wasn't up there very long. He just kind of popped up and came down. That was Alan Shepard. I think we got to stay home from school to watch that that time. Most of you remember that. But we're so used to watching people blast off or take off, fly somewhere, that we lose the wonder and the awe that those disciples must have experienced when they were standing there and all of a sudden Jesus just took off through the heavens and they just stood there with their mouths open watching him till he was just a little speck and disappeared through the clouds and they had no idea where he went and they just stood there with their mouths open until an angel finally came along and began to say, well, what are you all doing here? And it's Jesus who just left like this is going to come back in the same way so we know uh, something about how he will return at the second advent. But he passes through the heavens. This is the Greek verb diarchomai, which means to come or go through, to pass through, to travel through a place or a location. So it tells us that he is leaving planet Earth and he is going to a specific location at the right hand of God the Father. And when it says passing through the heavens, the Bible views the uh, universe in terms of three heavens. The first heaven is the atmosphere around the Earth. The second heaven is the stars in the universe. And then the third heaven is the throne of God. Now, according to evolutionary theory, the universe is, is infinite. It just keeps going and going. There's no end to it. But biblically speaking, we have to recognize that the universe is finite, that there's an end to it. And beyond that is where the throne of God is located. Jesus is going to a, a, a location. He's not just sort of dematerializing into another dimension. He is going from point A to point B. The language is, is very graphic in this regard. And he passed through the heavens. And then Hebrews 4.14 says, Therefore, because we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, that's the ascension of Christ when, his, when he went into his full-blown high priestly ministry, Jesus... The Son of God, emphasizing His deity now. Earlier there's been the emphasis on His humanity. Now the emphasis on His deity. Son of God being one who is fully divine. Let us hold fast our confession. And the word for hold fast is the verb kreteo, which means to hold on to something for dear life, to not let go. Hold on to your confession, and that's a word that we're used to hearing, homologeo, and it means a confession or admission of what you believe. And it came to indicate the, the body of doctrine that somebody held to. So the idea here is not to give up what you believe. And that was the, the problem with these Jewish readers of this epistle is that they were being pressured through persecution, through uh, their friends and family who hadn't trusted in Christ as their, Jesus as their Messiah, that they wanted them to come back into the fold of Judaism. And so because of this external pressure and persecution and rejection, they were on the verge of giving up and going back into Judaism. That's why back in verse, in chapter 2, uh, verse 1, it's, they're warned, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift Away. Notice the urgency that this author has and is stressing the emphasis in these applications. Therefore, we must give the most earnest heed. And then, in, as we've studied in chapter 3 and chapter 4, today if you will hear his voice. Then again, today if you will hear his voice. And a third time, today if you will hear his voice. There's this sense of, of immediacy and urgency. And then 4.11, Therefore, let us be diligent to enter the rest. And now then, uh, in verse 14, Therefore, 
because we have, or since we have, a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, therefore, because of this, let us hold firm, hold fast, don't give up on your confession. Don't give up on that body of doctrine that you've been taught and that you believe. Don't fade out, give up when things start getting rough. Then in verse 15, we have an explanation. What's the explanation? It is explaining why we shouldn't give up, why we shouldn't grow weary in the midst of the battle. For, that is because, this is the explanation, because we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, that's a double negative in the English. And what he is saying, he's, he's saying it in the, in the negative in order to make a point, but what he is saying is we do have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He's, not, uh, he's telling them, look, we don't have a high priest who just like these high priests and these other religions that have no real value, no real meaning. They're just another human being. But we have a high priest who's the Son of God, as he just said in verse 14. And yet, because of his true humanity, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, this is an interesting word to deal with because we think of sympathy as feeling sorry for somebody. But that's not the idea in the Greek. It, the, the, it's a combination of the Greek preposition soon, meaning with, and patheo, which has to do with emotion or feelings. Uh, so we can share in the, have a common bond in the feelings or in what somebody else is going through in certain circumstances. So the verb sympatheo means to show a disposition to help. Remember, in this same context, Jesus is the one who encourages us, comes to our aid, showing a disposition to help because of shared or common circumstances. So he is willing to help us and aid us because he has gone through the same circumstances that we've gone through. We don't have a, a, a God, a Savior, who is untouched by the traumas of human life. This is what you have in all the other world religions. But in Christianity, you have a God who became flesh, a God who sweated, a God who had to eat, a God who had to sleep, a God who grew weary, a God who would look out upon the, the suffering of the crowds because they had lost a friend like Lazarus. And as he saw the misery in their life because of the grief at death, he wept. This is a God who is touched by the commonalities of our uh, human experience. Go, the definition would go on to say that sympathetic means someone who is affected like another by the same sufferings, impressions, or emotions. So he's affected by his circumstances the same way we are. Just that what happens with us is when we have certain emotions, we react to, the, to the, those emotions or we react on the basis of those emotions, and it leads us into sin. But Jesus doesn't have, if there were certain emotions generated as a result of certain experiences, he doesn't use that as a justification to then sin. Someone who suffers, someone who has, has various experiences, the same as someone else. So that's what sympatheo means in the Greek. The idea of sympathy in the English means to have an affinity, an association, or a relationship between persons or things wherein whatever affects one similarly affects another. That's Merriam-Webster's definition. An affinity, association, or relationship between persons or things wherein whatever affects one similarly affects another. Jesus Christ is not just some distant God who's way out there somewhere who does not understand what we're going through. There is that level of commonality. He understands and He is there to aid and to help and to strengthen us in times of testing. Okay, let's go on. What is testing? Because we get into this, this next verse in verse 15 that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. The weakness is asthaneo, uh, meaning to lack strength. We're not strong enough spiritually. 
But he was in all points tempted as we are. This is the Greek verb perazo. Now, whenever we think of tempting, we always think of being enticed to sin because, frankly, you and I can't think of temptation in other than subjective terms. We are fallen creatures, and we can't think of temptation in any other way other than being drawn and attracted to the bait in the sin trap. And that's the imagery James uses in James 1. Sin is like, like, like the bait in a trap. And temptation is, is that attraction we have to the bait. And we always want to go for the bait. We always get suckered by it. But Jesus Christ didn't. Now there's two aspects to, to, to testing or temptation that we need to talk about to properly understand this. There's an objective aspect to it. And a subjective aspect to it. I've never found any other way to try to communicate this other than talking about a diet. If you haven't been on a diet, well, you probably won't have a whole lot to to, uh, sympathize with in this definition. But if you have ever been on a diet, you know that at times you get pretty hungry. And if you eat and your appetite is satiated and somebody offers you a piece of chocolate cake or a baked potato loaded with you know, lots of butter and sour cream and all the other stuff we're not supposed to have, then uh, you know that if you've already eaten, your appetite is satiated, that there's not an, an inner draw to that. There's not much of an attraction to that. It is nevertheless a temptation because somebody's offering you something that is desirable. But you're not drawn to it because your appetite is satiated. On the other hand, if it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon and all you had was just a, a, a little rice cake for breakfast or something, and it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon you're really hungry and somebody puts a loaded baked potato in front of you, you know that you're lost because you're just so hungry you're just going to gobble it up before you even think about it. And there's a tremendous draw and attraction to that baked potato. That's the inner subjective dimension of attraction to sin. Jesus never experienced that. What he went through was the external objective circumstances that, in essence, baited the trap for him. He was never, he never, he didn't have a sin nature. He wasn't born with a sin nature, so he's not internally drawn to the bait in the trap. But the bait in the trap is nevertheless real. And there is a test in front of him. Now, the word perasmas has the idea of to entangle a person in sin or to discover what good or evil, what weakness or strength is in a person. So it, it, it's, it, it offers the possibility of entangling a person in sin, but its ultimate purpose is to reveal or to demonstrate or to prove what the person is made of. In that sense, it has the meaning of to assay, that is to evaluate, to prove, or to test a person's character, to examine and to demonstrate their character. What are they made of? And so the tests that were put in front of the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated that he was sinless. He never operated independent of the Father. He never violated the Father's righteous standard. He never broke uh, with his, with the Father's plan. And so he never committed sin. He was born without a sin nature. He, Because of the virgin conception, he didn't receive the imputation of Adam's original sin. And then throughout his life, he met with these various adversities and tests, but he never committed sin in those circumstances. This is what is known as the doctrine of the impeccability of, of Christ, the impeccability of Christ, which refers to the fact that he is sinless. Now, let's just break this down a little bit. A lot of people get confused about this because they say, how in the world could Jesus be genuinely tempted if he never sinned? They, and then if he's God, how in the world could there really be any real opportunity to sin if he's God? Because if he's God, he can't change. So it's sort of like welding a uh, you know a little copper wire like you have in anything in your house, welding that to a steel beam. The humanity of Christ is like that copper wire. The steel beam is like the deity of Christ, like his deity, 
And no matter how much potentiality they may for that copper wire being twisted and turned and tied up in knots, as long as it's welded to that steel I-beam, it can't. So how can these be real temptations or tests if he can't sin because of his deity? Well, let me give you some ideas here. First of all, we have to realize just the basic terminology here that impeccability comes from the Latin verb pecare, which means to sin. When you add the I-M in front of it, it means not to sin. So the impeccability of Christ basically means Jesus Christ was without sin. The view that Jesus Christ could sin would be termed peccability. And there are some people, you liberal theologians, who don't take the Bible literally, believe that Christ could sin or probably did. And, of course, that's what, that's what underlies a lot of this nonsense with the uh, uh, Da Vinci Code and the idea that Jesus married Mary Magdalene. They had kids. And, you know, if they'd had, they'd had kids, you know, would they have had a sin nature? Well, we won't go into that. Just something to keep you awake at night. Third point, impeccability means that in hypostatic union, Jesus Christ could not sin. So that's the dilemma. If in hypostatic union, he could not sin, how could these be real, real temptations? But in his humanity, he could sin. In his humanity, he could sin. Now, what do we have to do to understand this? In his humanity, he could sin. But fifth, in his deity, he could not sin. How do we put that together? To do that, we have to bring in another doctrine out of Philippians chapter 2, which we don't have time to develop, based on the word kenosis. And this became a complicated or controversial doctrine because of liberal theology, which said that Jesus Christ uh, got rid of his deity, gave it up. But that's not what it says. By virtue of kenosis, Christ chose not to rely on his deity to solve human problems. Well, we've got a couple of minutes, so let's just turn over to Philippians 2, and I'll just point out a couple of things in the passage. Philippians 2, the point really is on Jesus Christ as an example of humility, that humility means obedience. And that's the command, that's the instruction in verse 5. Let this thinking be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. See, this isn't, just, this isn't some abstract theological exercise to try to deal with a complicated subject. It's very practical. Jesus Christ's kenosis, what happens in the incarnation, is practical because it demonstrates to us what real humility is all about. And what could be more practical than that? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, and that word form is the Greek word morphe, which has the idea of being in the essence of God. He had full deity. Who being from all eternity, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he did, some translations translated, who didn't think it was something to be grasped after. Who grasped after deity? Satan did. I want to be like the Most High. Who else grasped after deity? Adam and Eve. Satan said, if you eat of the fruit, you'll become like God. So they're grasping after deity. But Jesus Christ did not, though he was God, had full deity, did not think deity something to be grasped after in order to be equal with God, because he's not motivated by arrogance, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. Now, the King, New King James says, make, made himself of no reputation. That's uh, their attempt to translate the idea of kenosis. The verb kenao here, which means not that he gave up something, but it's defined by the next phrase taking on or adding to him his deity the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Now what happens in the kenosis, and the way you've probably heard this defined in the past is that uh, Jesus Christ uh, limited, the, or G Jesus Christ did not act independently, or willingly, voluntarily restricted the independent use of his attributes so that he did not act independent of the Father's plan, something like that. That God the Son did not act independent of the Father's plan. Well, when did God the Son ever act independent of the Father's plan? 
He never did. And all her, it doesn't have anything to do with his humanity. I think that the traditional definition of kenosis there falls apart because Jesus Christ never acted independently of the, of the Father's will. I think the point in the kenosis is that Jesus as the Son of God is never going to rely on his deity to handle the problems of his humanity. Now think about that. That he's never going to use his deity. When it says that he he voluntarily restricted his use of his deity, it, it, the idea is he restricted the use of his deity so that he's not going to rely on his omnipotence to turn the stones into bread. He's not going to rely on his omnipotence to jump off the pinnacle of the temple and land and not be uh, killed in the process. He's not going to... Uh, ever solve any of the pressures of adversity or temptation in his humanity by relying upon his deity. So he sets up this distinction between his deity and his humanity such that he, he sort of builds a wall of separation between the two so that he's not going to depend on his divine attributes to deal with the problems in his humanity. Thus, he's going to demonstrate in true humanity how to handle all the pressures of life, how to handle all the adversities of life, that in whatever the circumstances are going to be, Jesus Christ, in hypostatic union, relied on His humanity, on God the Holy Spirit, and the filling of God the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God to solve the problem. He never leaked over and said, okay, I'm going to borrow a little uh, omnipresence here, or borrow a little omnipotence here, or borrow a little omniscience here in order to solve this problem in my humanity. Now, there were times when he clearly demonstrated he was God and his omnipotence by turning the water into wine. But is he solving a problem in his spiritual life that way? No. He's demonstrating that he's the creator. There were other times when he fed the 5,000. He's demonstrating his humanity, but he's not solving problems, temptations, adversity in his life by leaning over on or relying upon his deity. He's doing. He handles all of his problems, all the adversity, by relying exclusively on his uh, humanity. So, point number six again. By virtue of kenosis, Christ chose not to rely on his deity to solve human problems. He relies upon the Word of God and the Spirit of God, and thus he sets the precedent for, precedent for us as to how to handle problems and testing in our lives. Therefore, point number seven, Christ was not dependent on his deity to not sin. He didn't rely on his deity to avoid sin. He engaged the challenge, the test, the enticement from his humanity by relying on nothing more than Scripture and the Holy Spirit to pass the test. So Jesus Christ has gone through all the same categories of testing that we go through. Not, it's not the same in, in the details, but it's the same in the category. He is tested in every category, and he demonstrates the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit, the sufficiency of God's grace, and the sufficiency of God's Word in every category of test. So when we come to the conclusion in Hebrews chapter 4, we read, therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. So there's two commands. These are present active subjunctives, which indicate uh, a first-person uh, exhortation. We should or we ought to. That's the idea in a first-person. Let First-person plural. Let us, therefore, come boldly. We can have confidence in going to the throne of grace because we have a high priest. Because that high priest was tested in every area as we are, because that high priest commiserates with us in our struggle, he, there is a, there's a relationship between us and him so that he is sympathetic with us in our testing. And we can come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain what? Mercy, grace in action, and find grace to help in time of need. When we face adversity, whatever those problems are, whatever the struggle is, we have a high priest, the ascended Lord Jesus Christ, who is a high priest sitting at the right hand of God the Father, 
who knows exactly what is needed to solve the problem. He is the source of grace to help us, to strengthen us in that time of need, whatever it may be. This is part of his function in his high priestly ministry. So there's two closing mandates. Let us hold fast our confession and let us come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That sets us up for the next section. And this will develop from 5.1 and following where there is a development of the whole doctrine of the high priesthood of Christ. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to realize once again that we have a high priest who understands all that we go through because he has gone through it first. He has demonstrated that your word is sufficient, your grace is sufficient, his work at the cross was sufficient, and we have all that we need to solve any problem, any adversity, any testing that we face in life. Father, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would make this clear to us and challenge us to rely more and more on your sufficient power and grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.